Good evening, I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast presented by Ranker, dedicated to telling short, scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows, but they are scary. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further, but your stories lie just ahead. Down the dark alleyway, your host awaits. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be... Mercurial. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. my little cadavers. Are you just crazy for dead time stories? Well, perhaps you should be committed, like the folks in our six stories about asylum murders. First up, we hear from a psychotic serial killer whose secret message may just make you an accessory. Here is the machete murder tape. Do you ever sit down and wonder what my voice sounded like? You must have an image of my face in your head. An image of a man that is more than likely completely wrong. You should know I've never wondered what you look like. We've been within arm's reach of each other four times. We've even shook hands. I know where you live where your kids, Annie and Dylan, go to school. I know everything about you, Detective Vargas. I hope this tape finds you well and gives you the help you need to finally catch me. I really do. I guess we should start with the original murders. That was the closest you ever came to catching me. You were going down the right path, but at the last second, you lost the scent. You were so close, I really thought I was going to have to murder you and your family. But your lack of detective work saved them. Kudos. My sole issue with your original theory was that you had it completely wrong. Disgruntled patient murders staff and himself. Such an easy open and shut case. Did you have something better to do that day? I would never kill myself. 
I'd derive more pleasure from being caught and electrocuted. Now, you could say I was a disgruntled patient, but that is what happens when you are tortured and belittled and made to feel like a zero. Anyway, it was January 7th. They started to give us some pills. I don't think they were even approved. I just remember taking the pills and feeling like a vegetable for days. I began to refuse the medication, and the nurses and doctors did not approve. I was constantly sent to solitary confinement, not fed, electrocuted on multiple occasions, and whipped. I learned to pretend to take the pills and hide each one. I pretended to sleep when they roamed the halls and knew the time they took their coffee break. It wasn't hard to slip the crushed pills I had saved into their coffee. I snuck the key card from the security guard and found a machete in the supply closet. As I made my way down the break room, I saw Nurse Evans coming down the hall. She typically didn't work on Wednesday night, you might remember. Must have been taking someone's shift as a favor. She was sweet like that. But I had to do what I had to do. The machete went smoothly across her neck. Her blood splatter added color to the lifeless white walls. What you should understand about murdering is that when it's done, it's done. You either feel guilty for the rest of your life, or you feel pride, as you should. Because you possess a power most of the world does not. To kill and to feel no remorse. The walk to the break room was rather somber. As soon as I walked in the break room, my heart began to beat seven times faster. I was excited to see how I could cut each one of them up. Dudley, I cut into three pieces. That's how many times he would pound on my door to wake me up in the middle of the night. With Frank, I removed four organs. He was always too healthy. <laughs> but truthfully, I cared zero about them. The head of psychology, Dr. Lawrence, would be my masterpiece. Killing the man who administered and signed off on all of my torture? You can say I got creative with him. I gave him an adrenaline shot to wake him up from the pills. Then I broke a leg off a chair and stabbed it through his stomach to prop him up on the wall. I wanted him standing. I wanted him to watch what I was going to do. With precise movements of my blade, I was able to permanently open Lawrence's eyes. He got to see and enjoy the massacre of his two other colleagues. The slaughter of the remaining staff went by rather quickly. I was ecstatic during the culling. Every inch of that room was covered in blood. Truth be told, I got sloppy. Too many clues. I sent five people to an eternal sleep that night, and in exchange awoke my true self. <laughs> it all became so clear. 
I'd have to burn the patient's wings to the ground. And forensics wouldn't know who had died or who escaped. As I walked away from the burning building, I could hear the sound of lunatics screaming. I was a phoenix, spreading its wings. It wasn't hard to create a new life. It is harder to kill now that I have a wife and child, but I make the time. Over the years, I made four more victims in the style of the machete murderer, as you call him. But you seem content to call it a copycat killer. This tape is to assure you it is not. My fear is that I am a god among ants. Will I ever be caught? Can I ever be caught? A lot of people imagine, what would it be like to be able to do whatever you want and get away with it? Truthfully, I can attest. Boring. I've decided to test my theory and see if you are my equal or an ant. I've hidden clues in this message in which you can contact me. They are there, detective, I promise. Give me a call sometime, if you have the courage. Kind regards, Machete Murderer. Well, my clever cadavers, did you uncover the clues? Furthermore, do you have the guts to call? <laughs> Let's take a break and see what you're made of. Our next tale is about a young girl who loves her walls red. She'll slice you and dice you until you are dead. <laughs> Listen to the legend of Red Rosie. Every moment of my life I've shared with my twin brother, Matthew. We did everything together. He was the braver, stronger version of me, and I was the smarter version of him. We balanced each other out. Like a lot of twins, we shared everything. Friends, homework, secrets... What we didn't share was a healthy sense of self-preservation. Matthew would always take a dare. And last Halloween, a friend dared him to visit Red Rosie's final resting place, an abandoned asylum. And just like that, we had to go. The story goes like this. Rosie witnessed her father stab her mother to death, and after that night, developed an obsession with the color red because of all the blood she saw. That's why they call her Red Rosie. Witnessing the murder really screwed her up and she became depressed and violent. That's when she was committed to the asylum. One day, a nurse was drawing blood from Rosie. Rosie watched the syringe fill with the blood and suddenly jammed the needle further into her own arm. When the nurse tried to stop her, Rosie pulled the needle out and stabbed the nurse 23 times. She killed three nurses before they caught her. At least that's how the story goes. If that wasn't scary enough... Last year, Dan Jones and Kevin Brown went up to the asylum. No one remembers what happened, but Kevin had to be rushed to the emergency room. Did Matthew give a shit? Nope. He was dared, so we were going. If we were going to visit Rosie, we were going when the sun was out and with protection. So we stuffed a backpack with a small arsenal and skipped school. When we got to the asylum, Jonathan, the kid who dared us, was waiting outside and started saying the creepy Red Rosie rhyme. Red Rosie, Red Rosie, she loves her walls red. She'll slice you, she'll dice you until you are dead. 
there was no turning back. Matthew wasn't going to let Jonathan humiliate him with some kid's rhyme. It was eight in the morning, the sun was bright and shining outside. We went in and shut the door behind us. The windows were covered with planks and metal bars. It seemed as if the sun was blocked out on purpose. We took the hammers from our backpacks and tried to take off a few pieces of wood to get some light in. Matthew focused on pulling nails while I anxiously looked around the pitch black room. Our sole light source was a cheap flashlight that could only shine three or four feet. Matthew gave up on the plank. He said we didn't need to pull it. Then he took out his BB gun and shot a BB at the plywood window covering, making a few pinholes of light. It helped, kinda. We were able to walk around without the shitty flashlight at least. The weird thing was, the tiny beams of light all pointed in one direction, at a single red door on the other side of the room. Matthew led the way with his BB gun. We stood at the door staring at each other. I was shaking. I told him I did not want to open it. Matthew gave me a look and shot two BBs into the door, making a peephole. I looked through the peephole and could see the room clearly. The walls were covered in blood. Something banged on the door from the other side. I fell back, pale with fear. It came again. I was so scared I couldn't move. Matthew was scared too, I could tell, but he wasn't going to run. He was going to open the door. Matthew kicked open and there was... Nothing. Just an old pitch black room. Filled with dust and cobwebs. No bloody walls. I figured I must have been seeing things. Didn't matter to me, though. I wanted out of there. I was feeling sick and dizzy, and it was getting hard for me to see. I was going to faint. I yelled for Matthew to leave. The last thing I remember was seeing him step into the room behind the red door. Then I... I blacked out. When I came to, I was standing. Not just standing, running. Matthew was pushing me towards the open red door. We were both in the room. His face was bloody, our flashlight busted. I didn't have time to think, I just ran for the exit. It slammed shut on my face. It was covered in blood. Then, I swear, I heard a voice whisper. Red Rosie, Red Rosie, she loves her walls red. She'll slice you, she'll dice you until you are dead. Matthew and me gripped the door handle and pulled with everything we had. The door flew open, smacking Matthew square in the jaw. He was dazed and going down for the count. I grabbed him and rushed to the first room. The sound of wet footsteps right behind me. I helped Matthew toward the front door when a light blinded me. The door had opened and someone was standing there blocking our exit. It was Rosie. I just knew it. Fear shot through me. But I wasn't going to let me or my brother die in that abandoned asylum. I reached into my backpack, grabbed my hammer, and chunked it at her. I've never been a good shot, though, and it whizzed by her head. Thank God, because Jonathan yelled, Are you trying to kill me? It was him holding the front door open for us. I grabbed Matthew and we ran out of there. No one went to the emergency room that day, but something tells me, had we gone at night, we'd still be in that asylum today. Well, the writing was on the walls for that one, eh, cadavers? 
Make like blood and run. <laughs> but not you. You stay put. More stories after the break. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Our next story follows Cheyenne during her first weeks at a new job, where she'll be worked to the bone, if she allows it. I call this one The Patient. When I was 22, I worked as a doctor's assistant at South Rivera Psychiatric Hospital. The patients weren't crazy like in the movies. They were normal people. They just needed a little more help than usual. I quickly learned that my job was to handle patients the doctor didn't want to. One of my daily tasks was to conduct check-ins with my assigned patients. I received a weekly list, and for my first couple of months, the list was consistent. It wasn't until the first week of May when I had a new patient, written in pen, Jeannie Smith. Jeannie was 14 shy and wore a beautiful green dress. Her check-ins were pretty quick, mostly because she didn't talk, ever. I asked her questions and she would just stare at me. After a couple of visits, I decided to try to get her to communicate through other methods, so I gave her a notepad and colored pencils. She didn't talk, but she could draw. After a few sessions, it became clear she was drawing specific images as if sending me a cryptic message. Jeannie was trying to tell me something. I'd ask her about them, but of course, she had nothing to say. After a while, Jeannie's check-ins began to feel counterproductive. She began to draw graphic scenes, often leading to her hurting a man. I decided that it was time to take her to Dr. Williams. I told Dr. Williams about my meetings with Jeannie, and he was adamant that no one in the hospital ever assigned me a patient, Jeannie Smith. He thought I was playing some kind of joke on him. I presented Dr. Williams with my check-in list, and his face went white in disbelief. He immediately stepped out. Standing in his office alone, I began to look around. On the wall, he had group photos of the current and past patients of South Rivera. The year 1970 had a young girl who looked exactly like Jeannie Smith. The discovery stole my breath. Just then, the doctor came back in the room. He slapped a manila folder into my hands. I looked at the name. It was Jeannie Smith's file. Jeannie arrived at South Rivera when she was 11 and stayed until she died in her sleep in 1971. The doctor then told me that if I actually believed I was meeting with Jeannie Smith, I'd be better suited for South Rivera as a patient. I was scared, confused. Every meeting I had with Jeannie felt real. 
I couldn't believe what was happening. As I made my way to my desk, I saw Janie standing in the middle of the garden. She had tears streaming down her face, and she was pointing to the ground. I ran to her. I grabbed her. She was real. I tried getting her to speak, but she just stood there in silence, pointing straight at the ground over and over again. She was showing me something and needed my help. I left her there and hurried to the janitor's closet for a shovel. When I returned, she was gone, but I knew exactly where to dig. I was carelessly digging, unsure of what I was looking for, when I hit a huge metal box. Using all my strength, I heaved the box from the hole and used the shovel to break its lock. When I opened the box, I found brittle bones laying inside a dress. The same green dress Jeannie wore. I ran for the nearest phone and called the police. I needed them to get there as soon as possible, so I lied and said that a patient was murdered. Well, I didn't lie, I just never said when the patient was murdered. I completed the call and set down the phone when a voice spoke behind me. I guess you will be one of my patients after all. It was Dr. Williams. His plan was to drug me and convince everyone I had lost my mind. He would say I had killed that poor little girl and buried her in the garden to cement the reality of my delusion. He cornered me near the coffee machine, pulled a syringe from his coat, and tried to inject me with it. I grabbed a mug and slammed it against his head. The doctor fell back and I ran out. I felt my heart beating through my chest. My legs couldn't run any longer. I made it to the main room, but South Rivera was empty and Dr. Williams was coming for me. I did my best to hide. Williams entered the room and I held my breath, keeping as still as I could inside the entry closet. But it was the first place he looked. He lunged at me with a syringe and I tossed a coat over him, giving me a second to push him aside. I screamed just as two policemen came through the front door. The police forced Dr. Williams to sit and they listened to my side of the story. I led the policemen to the metal box and they arrested Dr. Williams. Later I learned that Dr. Williams was under investigation as a prime suspect in the disappearance of Jeannie Smith. But when no body was found, the case went cold. Once I was allowed to go home, I went to my desk and gathered my things. There was a picture there I had never seen before waiting for me. It was of a little girl in a green dress, smiling. I guess the past really can come back to haunt you, eh, cadavers? Let's take a break and check our closets for any skeletons. Next up, Daniel tells us about a childhood friend he was forced to forget. Learn what became of his BFF, Jack. Growing up, I knew my dad had a special job. He was in charge of the hospital that my friend Jack stayed at. He worked at the West Virginia Mental Institute. Kids weren't allowed to visit, but dad was the head of psychology, so whatever he said went. 
I stayed clear of the patients and remained in my dad's office most of the time. My dad had lots of meetings during the day, and when he would leave, I would sneak out to see the garden. None of the patients liked to go outside, so I felt safe out there. I was an only child, so I was good at playing on my own. The day I met Jack, there were two red welts on either side of his head, on his temples. I couldn't help but stare. I asked how he got them, and he said he didn't remember. Then he asked if we could go play together. I was just hitting a stick against a tree, and sure, I could use the company. Jack and I got along really well. We played whenever I went to work with my dad. Every time, though, Jack was hurt in some way. He suffered a lot, and he was always tired. He said that his body was weak inside, so he had to take medicine that would make him sleepy. I never mentioned Jack to my dad until the day I saw Jack's wrist covered in bandages. I was scared for my friend, so I did what I could do to help. I told my dad. I had never seen my dad so angry. I was no longer allowed to visit him at his job. I was trying to help Jack, and instead, he lost the only friend he had. The next weekend, I decided I would make my mom take me to my dad's job. I promised Jack that I was coming that weekend before, and I couldn't break that promise. I woke up that morning with a bittersweet feeling. I was going to see my friend, but this might be the last time. I lied to my mom and told her I forgot an important book for school in the garden. I knew my mom was running errands and wouldn't want to wait for me. She would just drop me off. And that's what she did. I made my way to the garden a couple of minutes late, but nothing out of the ordinary. Jack was always on time, and he didn't mind waiting. I tried my best not to be seen. It was the weekend, so there was less staff. As I ran to the backyard, I arrived at our meeting spot. Jack wasn't there. I looked at the clock in the garden. 12.07. I was only seven minutes late. Jack had waited 20 minutes before. He was never late. I decided to sit and wait. The seconds felt like hours, and after waiting three minutes, I made my way inside. I snuck by a conference room and could hear my dad talking. It sounded important. It was the perfect time to search dad's office for Jack's file. I crept in my dad's office and opened his file cabinet. I started going through all the names when I heard the door slowly open. I hid underneath my dad's desk. My dad came in, yelling at his phone. He knew I was there. He lectured my mom for bringing me. I knew for sure this was the last time I would ever step foot in the institute. My dad paged someone in the office. He told them I was on the property and to look for me in the garden. He advised his team that he would be in an intensive treatment session and would need this to be handled without him. He left in a hurry. I knew where my dad conducted his intensive treatments. I had gone in there once, only for a second. An orderly grabbed me and said if I ever entered again, I would never be allowed back. The intensive treatment room was at the end of a long hall, down by the boiler room and the storage closets. The light was dim and the shadows crept up around me. I was shaking, I was so scared. What could my dad be doing behind that door that was so important? I think I knew. I think it involved Jack. I slowly edged toward the door when I heard my father's voice, muffled, but him. He was talking to someone. 
I could see shadows moving by the crack of the bottom of the door. There were two people inside. Then came the screams. The room filled with white light, like there was an electrical storm on the other side of the door. The screams were terrible, but I had to see what was happening. I wrapped my hands around the knob and opened the door to find... Well, that's where my memory gets foggy. Something hit me over the head, and when I woke up, I was in a hospital bed with two red welts on my temples. Just like Jack had. I never saw Jack again. Well, I do. In my dreams. I have this reoccurring dream where my dad is carrying me. He sets me on a table and straps me down, then places two electrical wands on either side of my head. That's when the lightning starts. But just before everything turns white, I see Jack, balled up in the corner of the room, eyes open, dead. You know what they say, good friends are like stalkers. You don't always see them, but you know they're always there. <laughs> now be a pal and wait through this next break. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Don't you hate those weirdos who have a morbid fascination with death? Relax, I'm kidding. The people in our next story are just like us. They tour an infamous asylum when things get a little too real. I call this one the Waverly Tour. I can't explain why I decided to go to the tour of the Waverly Asylum. I had heard about it growing up, but one day I started receiving postcards for a special tour to be held on the anniversary of the death of the Waverly killer, Damien Lynch. When I got there, I was relieved to see I wasn't the only one invited. The first person I met was Jessica. She told me it was the countless postcards she got in the mail that convinced her to take the tour. Together, we joined the rest of the group. There was Monica, Sam, and Paul. Like us, everyone had received postcards and came out of curiosity. The five of us entered the asylum together. We walked around kind of aimlessly, searching for the person who had organized the tour, but we found no one in the foyer. The place was cold and eerie. Jessica and I decided to stay close to each other, just in case. From what I knew of the Waverly Killer, he was a patient who went on a killing rampage, terrorizing patients and staff. When the police arrived, he had slaughtered 11 people. 
Jessica and I were walking through the hallway when all the doors slammed shut at once. We shared a nervous look. Just a draft, right? Before our instincts could convince us otherwise, one of the doors opened. A man stepped out and apologized for being late. He welcomed us, then ushered the group into a room. The thing was, I had just looked into that room moments before, and it had been empty. Anyway, once we were all inside, he explained he was our tour guide, though he never gave us his name. He asked us to go around the room and introduce ourselves when he began to stare at Jessica. It became clear that he wasn't listening to our introductions. I had to snap to get his attention. He smiled at me and asked us to follow him. He turned and opened a small broom closet. There was no way the six of us could all fit inside, but he assured me we would. I stepped in first and headed toward the back. Then I realized the closet was much larger than it looked. In fact, it led to an open door and into the kitchen. Now I knew how he had magically appeared from the empty room. This place has many tricks, he sneered. Well, the tour officially began in the kitchen, the place where the final victim died. We all stared at a huge bloodstain splashed across the floor. Our tour guide explained that Lucy Jin had just come down to make breakfast for the staff when the killer came up behind her and slit her throat. Just as he said this, he pulled a giant carving knife from the countertop and held it to his own neck. She never saw it coming, he told us. Monica screamed, not because she was scared, but because our overzealous guide had cut his own neck with the blade and it was bleeding. The tour guide rolled his eyes and apologized, saying he sometimes gets carried away. He asked if Monica would follow him upstairs to the first aid kit and help dress the wound. She agreed, and they left us there in the kitchen with the blood stain. While they were gone, we talked about how strange the man was. But Sam and Paul seemed to like it. They were into the macabre, they said, and this was a real treat for them. Just then we heard Monica and our guide upstairs walking around. A glass shattered. Moments later, the tour guide returned alone. No dressing on his cut neck, more blood on him than before. His eyes remained fixated on Jessica. I asked him where Monica was. He walked in front of my face till we were about an inch apart and told me Monica needed to clean up a mess she made. But we'd join her very shortly. As we made our way towards the dining room, I knew something was up. I looked back, hoping to see Monica, but all I saw was the dark and dusty asylum. In the hall, just outside the dining room, he had a stop and look at four tiny holes in the wall. He stared at Jessica as he told us we were looking at bullet holes from the security guard's gun. The guard had been able to squeeze off four rounds before the killer plunged his knife into the guard's eye. Just as this image sunk in, the guy pulled out a gun. He pointed it at Paul and fired. Paul clutched his chest and looked down at his bloody wound. <sighs> Red paint. The guide laughed. Paul's face went from shock to smiling. I guess he really did like the guide's sick humor. The guide grinned and asked Paul to follow him to the men's room to clean up. When they left, Jessica looked at me. I could tell she didn't think it was funny, and I didn't either. We told Sam we were going to leave, and Sam said he would too. I went to leave through the door we had come in, but it wouldn't budge. Someone had locked it. Sam and I looked for another way out when Jessica tried the door again. It opened, and our guide was standing right there to greet us. Jessica was frozen in place. Sam rushed to her side. He asked where Paul was and was told they couldn't get the stain out, that Paul was in the gift shop browsing t-shirts. Well, I told the guide the tour was over 
We want to leave now. The guide looked shocked, but said he understood. The tour can be intense, he said. He would show us the way out, but because another tour had already begun at the front, he'd have to take us another way so as not to disturb the new group. <laughs> I knew there was no other group and that something awful was happening here. Sam and I were glued to Jessica's side. We all knew that whatever plan the guide had was centered around her. We walked along in an awkward silence until Sam asked about Monica. I'd been so concerned with Jessica's safety that I didn't even realize Monica had been gone this whole time. The tour guide ignored Sam, and his fixation with Jessica continued. We rounded a corner, and up ahead was a room scorched black from a fire. On the other side of the room were double doors and a sign that read emergency exit. For the first time during the whole tour, I felt relaxed. Just then, the tour guide mentioned that this was the final room of the tour and asked if we'd like to hear what happened there. I looked at Jessica, and she shook her head no. I told the guide that we had had enough and were leaving. As I moved for the exit, he stood in my way. But it's the best part, he said. Sam pulled me back. He said he wanted to stay and hear this last part. Then Sam whispered in my ear. When we walked past the last hall, he told me, I swear I heard someone call for help. I'm going to go back and check it out. I nodded and played it cool. Sam told the guide he needed to use the restroom first, and the guide offered to show him the way, but Sam said he could find it on his own. Sam took off, and it was just me, Jessica, and the guide. I knew I needed to stay and keep an eye on our creepy guide while Sam checked out the call for help he'd heard, but there was no reason Jessica needed to be here. I apologized to her, saying, I'm sorry, but I changed my mind. I want to hear this last part. You should go wait in the parking lot for us. She nodded and moved for the door. The guide smiled and said he'd see her soon. Jessica walked through the exit doors. It was just me and him now. He began describing the atrocities that took place in this room. Apparently, it was the so-called safe room where the staff was told to gather during an emergency. The problem was the killer knew that too. He waited for the staff to gather, then shut the light out. Right on cue, the lights went off. I couldn't see a thing, but I could hear the guide walking around me. He kept talking, telling me the killer locked all the doors. Then I heard all the doors in the room slam shut and lock. I felt a pit in my stomach. I guess it was my turn to exit the tour. Can you smell it? The guide asked. The gasoline? It was the final thing they smelled before they went up in flames. The guide struck a match. I knew exactly where he stood now. I charged him, got my hands around his throat and squeezed as hard as I could. All of a sudden, the lights came on. I looked over, and there was a group of people standing in the room with a second tour guide. Monica, Paul, and Sam were with them, too. I looked down at my tour guide, his neck still in my hands. One thought raced through my head. I hope he's still breathing. Whoa, someone should have warned Matt the tour wasn't interactive. I hope he knows CPR, or at least how to get away with murder. Don't go on the lam just yet, cadavers. We have one last story after the break. For our final tale, we meet Charlotte, who visits her ill sister and gets a gift she'll never forget in Happy Birthday, Charlotte. Ever since I was little, my sister Cassandra lived two towns away. Every weekend, my mom and I visited Cassandra. 
I thought it was really cool that she lived in a house that had its very own name, North Point Asylum. As I grew up, I learned the truth. I'll say it now. Cassandra is the furthest thing from crazy. Rude, bossy, tough. Kind of a bitch, sure, but not crazy. Mom beats her on the crazy scale by more than a few miles. Cassie isn't any different than your normal teenager. She follows a curfew, diets, and takes a couple of pills a day. Anyway, it was my 13th birthday and I told Mom that I wanted to celebrate with Cassandra outside of North Point, so we requested for Cassie to have an off-site visit. We came to the hospital in high hopes, but the second I saw the look on Cassie's face, I knew it had been denied. Cassandra was never good at lying or hiding things. She was pissed. So Cassie and I made our way to her room while my mom signed us in. I could tell Cassie was boiling and it was my job to cool her off. I played one of our favorite songs on my phone and danced around her room. Cassie sat on her bed, grinding her teeth. Then she snapped at me to turn it up. I cranked the tunes and Cassandra smiled towards the door and threw herself on her bed. Immediately, a nurse bolted through. The nurse told us to turn the volume down, but Cassie just rolled her eyes. Once the nurse left, Cassie told me that the staff was on edge because a patient named Stacy lost her pet snake and it was roaming the building. The music was going to be our cover. I didn't like the way Cassie was acting. I knew something was off. I hoped mom would come in, but she didn't. Then Cassie told me she had a birthday present for me. It was a plan. A plan to get to the off-site visit I requested. We were going to make our way into the vents and into the mailroom. From the mailroom, it was a short walk to the loading bay where we could hide in a truck and ride to freedom. I know how it sounds. I should have banged on the door and told the nurse. But Cassie's my sister and she just wanted me to have the birthday I asked for. Plus, she had this look in her eye. I didn't feel safe, so I did what she asked. Cassandra got up and pointed to where to move her bed. Slowly, I helped her move the bed towards the door and below the vent. She popped off the vent and then stared at me. You're going first, she told me. It was no secret that I wasn't a fan of tight spaces, but she assured me that it would be fine. All my life, Cassandra had been at North Point. I always knew she didn't belong there. She was my best friend, and I'd do anything for her, even face my biggest fear. The first five minutes were the hardest. I felt as if the walls were shrinking around me. The tighter the space got, the tighter my throat became. I couldn't breathe. Ow! Cassie came up behind me and pinched my leg. It hurt, but it helped me focus. Cassie barked an order and I obeyed. She knew exactly when and where to turn. For a moment, I actually believed I was going to get to that off-site visit with her. Then I saw it. Slithering straight for me. Stacy's snake. My heart dropped and I froze. Every bone in my body wished we were back in Cassie's room listening to music. Then I heard Cassie's whisper. That's the vent. Go. I took a deep breath and looked ahead. Just beyond the snake was the vent that led to the mailroom. Cassie demanded I keep moving. We were so close. I scooted closer and closer to the snake. I squeezed my body as far right as I possibly could. 
With the snake inches away, I closed my eyes and kept moving. <laughs> I felt something slither up my hand. I shook my arm in horror, but that only made the snake wrap its entire body around my arm. Then I felt a sharp pinch and a bolt of lightning shot through my arm. I continued to crawl, but my vision was going dark. I made it to the mailroom vent and fell through it. I think I passed out for a couple of hours. That's what my mom said. My mom stayed with me all night. I asked where Cassie was and my mom let me know she was safe now. The next day, two nurses came in and asked what happened. I told them the story and said I wanted to see Cassie. They stared at me for a moment, searching my eyes. What? I asked. The looks on their faces formed a pit in my stomach. Don't you remember? You stabbed her in her room. Nothing made sense. I landed in the mailroom because I got bit by Stacy's snake. The nurse told me they didn't allow pets at North Point and that there were no patients by the name of Stacy. I showed them the bite mark. They told me it was from an orderly zapping me with a taser. The nurses went away for the day, and I was left in my room, instructed to write down everything that had happened to me. I would never hurt Cassandra. She's my sister. We just wanted to leave for a bit. It was my birthday. I just wanted my sister to be free for my birthday. So I followed her crazy plan. The vents, the snake. It was all explained in my story. It's been a few weeks now, and it isn't so bad here. Just a normal teenage life. Curfew, diet, pills. I miss my mom and Cassie. I ask about her to see if she's okay or see if we're able to ever talk. But every time, the nurses just ask me about what happened that day. My story never changes. We went through the vents, I saw a snake, and I fell. I didn't lie. I didn't hurt her. The snake was there. I didn't hurt her. I got hurt. I didn't hurt her. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Charlotte, and now you are screwed. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed our six stories about asylum murders, and do come visit me again soon. We have many more short, scary stories to share. <laughs> Sweet dreams, my little cadavers. <laughs> You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The stories you've just heard were written by Stephanie Vega. Tonight's episode starred Todd Lights, Carly Abuso, Mary Catherine Greenewald, Fiona Dorn, and Andrew Arnett. With editing by Dan Rabbins. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>